episode of Raise Your Voice. I'm so honored and I feel so privileged to have the doctor, the scholar, the uh, the urban poet, as some may say, none other than Dr. Sidney Freeman, who is going to be uh, talking to me today a little bit about the work that he does and a, a riveting article that he published um, uh, uh, very about a few months ago and just want to get his thoughts and his feelings about it. So, uh, Sydney, why don't you introduce yourself to the people, tell them a little bit about yourself, uh, what you're doing and what you would like to do or whatever you feel like sharing. All right. Thank you so much for this opportunity. I'm a, a fan of your work and uh, appreciate the work that you're doing on the, on the ground. Uh, just a little bit about myself. I'm originally from Camden, New Jersey. I'm an Allegheny East baby. Uh, went through uh, Christian Adventist education from K through 20. I went to Pine Forge uh, for four years. Uh, after that, uh, went to Oakwood. Uh, my area wasn't uh, it wasn't theology or even my area of education that I'm in now. I actually did a interdisciplinary studies major, uh, and my areas of emphasis were vocal performance business management, and public relations. Mm-hmm. So currently, I'm an associate professor at the University of Idaho. Uh, uh, there's not many of us out here, so it's uh, it's like I've been out here on the Isle of Patmos. So I've been able to do a lot of writing, a lot of thinking uh, about uh, what it means to be a Seventh-day Adventist, and in particular, being a Black Seventh-day Adventist. So uh, that is kind of the foreground of kind of the paper that I, uh, that I put out there. Nice, man. So man, you jumped right into it and I'm glad that you did. Uh, but just to backtrack a little bit, uh, Idaho, I think you probably are the first black person <laughs> that I know that lives in Idaho, but I'm glad to know that we are, we are everywhere. So everywhere. Uh, a, a, a quick, quick, interesting story was that I worked at Tuskegee University before coming here. So I came from directly from living in Montgomery, Alabama, uh, working at Tuskegee University and then coming to the University of Idaho. So it's like polar opposites, right? Right. So so it's been interesting. It's been an interesting experience, but my wife and I, who has her doctorate in health science, is she teaches in our medical our medical school program here, and um, and so she her her work in her work she's kind of grown and uh, the work that she's doing and we're actually working on a project a, a book chapter on uh, I, I think you'll appreciate this the spooks the spooks at the door mm. uh, uh, being black at a rural. Uh, white universities. So mm. talk about the, the essence of it is talking about how do you uh, maintain your spirit in a place that does not reinforce uh, your kind of culture and background. And we look at social spirit, personal spirit, and then kind of your religious spirit. And so, so 
we're out here writing and kind of really thinking about some of these important issues uh, related to our people. Man, that's powerful because, you know, the, 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 uh, the pressure is always there to assimilate and to try to, you know, fit in and become less of yourself and become something that you're not just to be socially accepted. So, man, you know, I like, I like the title of that, the spook, you know, I was telling somebody the other day that it feels like the darker, the darker the skin, um, you are like this international boogeyman. And he's like, no matter where you go, no matter how dark your skin are, you are lower on the totem pole in, in this, in this world. And so there's always this pressure to be less black and to be more of something else that you're not so that you can remain safe in an environment. And, you know, and that's, that's unfair because everybody else gets to be themselves. You know, when you look at this society, well, let me not say everybody, most people get to be themselves in this society or, or culturally acceptable when it comes to African-Americans or even Africans, blacks in general, we always have to assimilate to try to become accepted socially in various spaces so man i'm i'm celebrating your work man i'm a big fan of yours too um and so you wrote this article that sent like ripples throughout the adventist community and i'm so glad that adventist today actually published it and you entitled it a state of emergency trained african american adventist theologians needed um what inspired you to write that so I would say over the last three or four years, I've been, ga- I've been engaging in some research on a gentleman by the name of Owen Troy Sr. He was the first person in the Seventh-day Adventist denomination to earn a doctorate of theology. So a black man was the first person to earn a doctorate of theology in our, in our church. And I came up across his name. Uh, reading a book on uh, that was called Perspectives. It was a edited a edited volume by Calvin Rock, uh, Meltram Ber- uh, Bertram Melbourne, excuse me, from Howard University wrote the chapter on uh, Blacks' contributions to Seventh Day Adventist theology, and there was a whole little three paragraphs that kind of summarized. Owen Troy's contribution to uh, to the theological uh, thinking within the church. And so I said, wow, that's, you know, how was he able to do that uh, in the in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s? And out of that, uh, out of really digging into that, I began to really reflect on a lot of my colleagues uh, who went on to become ministers. And I found that a lot of those guys were, I believe they're smarter than me and they have particular gifts that, uh, that they could contribute uh, in, a academic environment, in an academic environment, but they did not decide to do that. And then as I was doing more research, I found that um, there was not um, a lot of African-Americans under the age of 50 uh, who, who had a degree in theology and was teaching at our seminary or any of our Adventist schools. And I, I think that's, that's uh, an emergency because uh, we can't have it where if, you know, these senior, these senior uh, leaders pass away, we have no one that has the skills and the kind of uh, 
requisite background to contribute to our theological thought in the uh, in the church. And so uh, that is why uh, I wrote I wrote the piece. I, I would also mention that I think is really that I think is really important um, uh, that we look at how our schools are supporting supporting uh, supporting our young our young scholars. And so I talk a little bit about that in the piece. Yeah, and that's so powerful because I'm, I'm reminded of that proverb. Uh, that says, until the lion has its own historian, the hunter becomes the hero. And what you're expressing is kind of along that line where if there aren't Black theologians, if there aren't Black scholars, then who is going to speak on things that are, I guess, indicative or personal to us that can speak from our experiences and teach from our experiences? If you only have a certain demographic that's speaking for us, then we only learn what their perspective is and not from our, what our perspective is as well. And so let me ask, like, what kind of response did you, did the article get? Was it a positive response, negative response? What, what, what were your, what was your feedback? Overwhelmingly positive. Um, I got in, in, in the Adventist world, I, I would say in, in its own little way, it went viral. Uh, and so it was great. It was great as an academic. A lot of times you don't, until you go to a conference or you may get a, a email from a student or a colleague, they may reach out to you and say, man, this really was a, uh, a great piece. But you don't generally get a lot of people engaging with your work. And so, um, so to get this kind of engagement via Facebook and other mediums, it was great to have sparked that conversation. Uh, I, out of that, we learned that at least we have at least one, one person under 50 right now. Uh, his name is Jerome Skinner. They just hired him last year at uh, Andrews. And so when I talk about theological education, I want to kind of define that for people so mm-hmm. they know what we're talking about. So I'm talk, uh, talking about people that are trained in content theology, people mm-hmm. that have uh, a, a background, a strong background in biblical languages. They study areas like Old Testament, New Testament, um, uh, uh, um, what other kinds of theology. There's different types of, of con- uh, constructive theology. There's these different uh, technical areas of of uh, research in which they are trained in, whereas, let's say, a more practical, hands-on degree, advanced degree would be the, the doctorate of ministry. Mm-hmm. And so I'm making that uh, that distinction. So I think there's, my, my issue is that there's a place for both. I think, uh, I think one of the one of the initial pushbacks, just even with them talking with members of my family when trying to work out some of these ideas before I uh, created the paper, was that it was like, why is this needed? Um, why do we need more scholars? It was kind of like, you know, we need to be evangelizing people and things like that. And so we had to really talk about kind of the differences in degrees. And that I'm not saying that most of a, most of our theology students need to be get their PhD or PhD. The challenge is when you have one or none, 
uh, I think that's an emergency. And one other distinction, if I can just say this, uh, is also I make a distinction in the paper between African-Americans and the black diaspora uh, more broadly. And so uh, it's more in alignment with the definition of the, uh, the ADOS movement, the uh, uh, American descendants of slaves uh, in America, where we're looking at the perspective, what I'm talking about is the perspective of those who uh, they're in their lineage, they have people that were slaves here in the United States, although we recognize that uh, the importance of maybe a more pan-African approach uh, in the future. Mm-hmm. And which is interesting, um, just backtracking a little bit in regards to other theologies and uh, understanding and knowing that. In my matriculation at Andrews University and Atlantic Union College, and even as being an Adventist for majority of my life, it appeared to me that other theologies are frowned upon and we just focus solely on Adventist theology. I mean, as I've always, like I've pinpointed in my, highlighted in my book and various places that I go, in comparison when I'm in, with, in spaces with Baptists or AMEs or, you know, other denominations, these gentlemen, these pastors have been encouraged to read other theologies. So they not only study what is, you know, their faith tradition, but they also study about other theologies. And they're also led to read, to read MLK's beloved community and Howard Thurman, Jesus and Disinherited, uh, Gustavo Gutierrez and his theology of liberation, and even on James Cone, Black liberation theology. Adventism seems as if, and I don't know if you've witnessed this, maybe perhaps you have, that it's mainly about protecting Adventism and making sure that all we learn is about Adventism so that we're not actually well-versed in other things that are out there in order to help support our theology or be able to say, hey, you know, this makes sense. We can, or this doesn't make sense. Um, So are you arguing, or are you saying that we need scholars who are diverse in various theologies to bring this to the forefront to students that are under their tutelage, to students, or even to congregations so that we can become more versed in what's happening, you know, in various other denominations? Yes, and I would even extend that. I would say that we need to be creating our own theology. Mm. So in the paper, I talk about uh, your work with, uh, and one of your books, you talk about developing a theology of public policy. Um, Mm. There is, um, uh, Jason O'Rourke is looking at a theology of social justice. Uh, So uh, I, I and another uh, theologian from La Sierra University, Mari Jackson, talk about a Black Adventist theology. And in one of our previous papers, we, we, uh, we challenge this whole notion of what is Adventist, right? The even notion of, ad, of, of an Adventist theology, right? Because our Adventist theology starts with William Miller. Well, we're saying that we had there were African-Americans that were talking about the advent of Christ before William Miller. Mm-hmm. And so we're, so, so I would suggest that how do we look back and actually say, what does, 
Adventism, or what does ab- being Adventist or Adventism means to African-Americans given the context of the United States. And I think, uh, I think that we will be able to pull from other theologies and other thoughts, but I would like to see us to construct our own theology that would uh, be able to impact our people in a positive way, because I believe our theology, our Adventist theology, as it's currently constructed, is a white theology, right? Mm-hmm. And it does not uh, address the needs of the broad swath of our community. I love it, man. I mean, you are totally down the, the same. You are bowling down my alley. You are sitting in my pew right next to me. I totally agree that uh, African Americans, Blacks, however you want to uh, label um, label us or put us in is that we have a unique experience in America. We have a unique experience throughout the world. And as you stated, our theology is very Eurocentric and it does not address the ills of society that we as African-Americans have to deal with on a daily basis. The trauma that we face mentally with seeing um, black children being gunned down by officers who, you know, who are armed and they are unarmed, or even the trauma of um, just our communities, which look like third world countries, you know, in one of the most um, in one of the most lavish and luxurious nations um, on the earth. And then the other thing too is that is that these third world conditions, most of them have African American churches in it. So there's this great disconnect with the theology we preach and the communities that we're in. And it's very, as my research that I looked into it, is that it's very Eurocentric, that it is a pie-in-the-sky theology, almost a, you know, Jesus will come and fix all things, which is wonderful and which is true, but what do I do now? You know, like, (laughs) I'm hungry now. You know, I'm facing eviction now. There's systems and policies that are created against me, and how does my faith, how does the Bible address these issues so that I can live a life, as Jesus said, uh, more abundantly and prosperous until he returns. So, man, that's... Can I, can I jump in yeah. really quick? Can yeah, I, jump in. Well, I, I want to also make a distinction between uh, when, when I'm saying... A black Adventist theology. I'm not talking about focusing on the seventh day. I want to make a, a distinction, right? There's mm-hmm. been a lot of work that's been done by Charles Bradford um, and other Adventist scholars uh, on, on the origins of blacks uh, celebrating the Sabbath uh, in Africa and in, mm-hmm. uh, in other parts of the diaspora. So we're not talking about what would be a black perspective on the Sabbath day. That's already been done. What we have not done is look at what is our perspective on, on the second coming of Christ in our context, right? And uh, currently, uh, I think there, there has been a misapplication of, of that idea to our community when we think about our current theology. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with that. Um, it's it's not pan-African, it, you know, uh, and, and that's and it's amazing, right, that I've been I've had the privilege of traveling to Zimbabwe, 
to South Africa, into Kenya, and to Ghana. And it's particularly Ghana was the most, was one, well, one of the most intriguing experiences when we visited the- I visited to Ghana uh, uh, in July. Okay, so you have to go to, you got to go to Kwame Nkrumah's um, uh, burial site. And, and while there, he has six individuals, and I'm, I hope I'm being accurate this, but this is what I remember. He has seven individuals blowing a trumpet, but the seventh one is away from the other six. Mm-hmm. Kwame Nkrumah did that um, intentionally to say that this seventh one is resting. Mm-hmm. So there's an understanding there of the Sabbath and, and um, of God's rest that Kwame Nkrumah knew and that these Africans well and well and understood way before, like one of the comments that, and I, hey, hey, Sydney, if you feel like cursing, you can curse on this podcast, right? One, <laughs> one of the, the comments that pisses me off the most is when I hear black people say, um, we need to be grateful for slavery because that introduced us to Jesus Christ. And I say, yes, it introduced us to a Eurocentric white supremacist Jesus Christ, but not the Jesus Christ that the Africans or the Jesus that the God that the Africans knew. And I love where you're going, where we say we need to trace even back to our roots of Africa and to incorporate. Somebody needs to dig this up and to make these a reality to show that, look, the Sabbath. Um, the Sabbath observance, the, the the things that we, the tenets that we hold on to, were there before, um, you know, civilization came to America and pilgrims came here in 1844. That we were people of the Bible, people of understanding the suns and the moons and the stars, peoples, uh, people of theology that understood the greatness of the Trinity and things of that nature. That all of that stuff is missing because when you live and grow in America. You only learn American history. And when you go to school, theological schools in America, you learn American theological history. And we are totally left out of the picture. Um, yeah, man. So that's, um, man, you want to some, some good stuff, man. You really want to some good stuff. So, yeah, go ahead. Jump in. You want to say something? I was going to say, uh, I, the way I framed the paper was that I am not a theologian. So mm-hmm. I so I framed the paper as uh, I am a scholar. I am a scholar of doctoral education. So I've written articles and and uh, and book chapters in areas on oh actually my book <laughs> on doctoral education. And so I looked at it from a uh, a competitiveness standpoint. And so I'm saying that it's not good for the world church, right? To not have to not have those who are trained uh, in that area. So I just wanted to also uh, point that out. Yeah, no, that's good. That's good stuff. I'm glad you're pointing that out. So how do we how do we promote scholarship amongst us? Like, how do we get more African Americans to to dig deep into it? I was talking to a friend, and you know, uh, one of the things that he was saying to me was that. The black church leans heavily on preaching and the white churches lean heavily on scholarship. And so, you know, um, in the black church, if you can preach good, that's enough. That's, that's all the black church needs. And versus with the white churches is that they 
they they tend to esteem their pastors for being scholars and push and promote them. Um, is that true? Maybe in some cases, you know, I think it's changing. But what do you think we can do to promote scholarship amongst blacks? I think we need to be doing some of the things uh, that scholars like Frank A. Thomas is doing. Uh, he started a program at a Christian Theological uh, Seminary, I believe it's called, uh, which is the first, it's the first uh, PhD in black uh, preaching. And, um, and what he's doing is uh, creating a scholarly doctorate in such a way that it connects uh, theory and practice, right? And so we need to, uh, in the paper, I challenge, I challenge both Andrews and Oakwood. Uh, and, and, and this is uh, one of the, one of my, one of my, my other colleagues uh, pushed me uh, to do this. He said, this is, do this now while you're not working for the system, right? <laughs> this is the time, you know, this is, you got tenure, you have a tenure lifetime job in Idaho. So, <laughs> so <laughs> You can say what you need to say, and and so, uh, so places like a you know a, a place like Oakwood, there's no other place like Oakwood, but a place like Oakwood uh, is particularly positioned because of the uh, population of students that they have, black students, is that we can be very intentional uh, at the undergrad level when we see a student has a proclivity and strength in the area of biblical languages, have has strong writing skills, to encourage them to think about. Uh, pursuing uh, academic theology in, in some way. Uh, I think we need to have a conversation, broader conversations with our congregations about the importance of that um, and, and why, and even politically, right? Because, so when we sit at the table, let, let's be real, right? So when we sit at the table and we sit at the table and GC and we're talking about issues of women's ordination, I know, uh, uh, Rebecca Davis and I did did a article addressing some of those those issues related to uh, women's ordination uh, that issue. But when you sit at the table uh, and we're talking about what is the biblical uh, foundation for ordination, right? They are not asked. They're not going to. They're not going to be asking people with MDivs and and DMins per se. Uh, to weigh in on the uh, the Greek and the Hebrew, uh, uh, the original what was said in the Greek and the Hebrew about ordination, right? They're going to go. They're going to go to the biblical research uh, research institute uh, at the general conference, and they're going to be looking for scholars, PhD, THD scholars uh, within our church. And what I don't want, what I don't want to be said is that either. We're not qualified to be at the table, right? Because we don't have the academic uh, uh, credentials. We have a, a master's, uh, or we're only at the table because we do evangelism, right? And they're not they're not uh, rep- they're they're not um, respecting our minds and our perspectives. So I think it's very important from that standpoint. Uh, that we kind of encourage encourage the development of scholars in our church. So, yeah, yeah, yeah man, I, I I so agree. Like, you know, I was having a conversation with a particular student at Oakwood University, 
And um, I've just always admired the students' intellectual giftedness. And, you know, they were so bent on becoming a pastor. And I was trying to encourage them to not box themselves into thinking that being a pastor means only leading a church, that you can pastor with a PhD because you might have a bigger influence um, on the movement in a classroom than you would in a church and the contributions that you can make, or you can still pastor and have that PhD, but they were so bent on, you know, becoming a pastor. And I was like, I see a giftedness in you that I really think you should go towards a PhD because you have that on you. And I agree that we need to start being more intentional about placing our hands on certain individuals and saying, look, we're putting you on a PhD track. We're going to help fund it because we need more scholars coming out. We need more uh, leaders coming out academically to be in certain positions to make sure that certain things are said and certain things are communicated. And as you stated, you know, um, so uh, I have, I have grown to learn and to understand the difference between a demon and a PhD. Now that I'm in a PhD program, I understand why there is a difference. There's a major difference in what the path is to becoming a scholar. And I think that we definitely need these scholars because, as you said, they're not going to come to the pastor with the MDiv for research, or they're not going to come to the person with the, with the, uh, the bachelor's degree for research. They're going to be looking for people who are experts in certain areas to give scholarly responses to some of the more weightier topics that our church has to deal with. That's dope. That's dope. Um, Oakwood University, uh, what would you like to say to them if you had the opportunity to sit down before the board of trustees? What, what would you say to that institution? Oh, that's a heavy, that's a heavy question, right? <laughs> uh, I would, I would say, that we need to, I, I remember having a, a discussion with my father-in-law about Oakwood's unique role uh, within our church. And I said that, you know, I said that we need to specialize. We have all these different, we have all these different majors and things like that. But uh, in higher ed, the conversation now is that you need to I, uh, identify your niche area and kind of uh, really kind of hone in your resources in those areas in which you have particular strength. Well, well, his argument, his argument was that we needed, because of Oakwood's uniqueness, such as, uh, as similar to Howard and Tuskegee, uh, it needed to be, have a broad, needed to have a broader breadth of, of majors and also master's and doctoral, doctoral degrees given its impact on our community. And I'm thinking that Oakwood needs to be really thinking about, I know they're, they're moving into the graduate education arena in the past. Uh, they had the Master of Arts and Pastoral Studies, uh, but not necessarily uh, MDiv, MDiv or these other, these, uh, other theological degrees. But I would, I would be strongly encouraging them to add uh, a master's in theological studies, a master's in divinity, and a PhD 
and religion, but I would have concentrations in these areas. And I think right now we have uh, we have enough uh, enough THD and PhDs uh, within uh, Oakwood right now to probably offer that. Uh, and given they they just got a uh, distinction uh, from I believe it was from. I'm forgetting the accrediting organ, uh, the accrediting body, but they just got a new accreditation from a theological body that would allow them to do that. So I would run with that. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. You wrote in your article um, this quote, and I think you kind of elaborated it in our conversation, but I'm going to read it. And it says, although in this treatise, I focus on the immediate need for African-American theologians there is a need for an inclusive pan-African approach to theology in order to ensure the development of all African peoples. Uh, can you elaborate on that a little bit more? Maybe like the inclusive pan-African approach. Yes. Yeah, so um, Josiah Young uh, wrote this uh, book called A Pan-African Theology, Providence and the Legacies of the Ancestors. And so I think that's uh, in in that context, that would probably be a good place kind of to start um, with that conversation uh, related to to that. Right. My, my focus of of my article was on African-Americans, American descendants of slaves. Right. And I believe we have a particular uh, particular experience in America. Slavery was. There's a particular uh, way in which those who um, are descendants of slaves have been impacted by Jim Crow and uh, other, you know, redlining and other uh, negative experiences within this country. Uh, my colleague, um, Dr. Ty Douglas, uh, he said he said one time that, you know. A, a black person, a black person who uh, whose parents whose parents came in on Delta, right, is going to have a different socialization and perspective on America versus uh, someone whose great great grandparents came from came to these stores on the bows in the bows of of a ship, right? And mm-hmm. so we have to. So uh, I was pushed by one of the theologians, uh, one of the uh, one of the uh, I said, I, overwhelmingly, I got positive feedback, but one person just pushed back on me. It wasn't, it wasn't necessarily negative, but kind of pushed back on me. They were, they were uh, pushing for, well, you know, the Caribbean had similar, uh, uh, had similar uh, experiences in other parts of the diaspora, but I still think that the African-American experience is particular uh, given this particular land. And so I think we start from there. But given, but given that, um, given that uh, there is a need for for a decolonizing of our the way that we think about theology across the diaspora, is uh, it's important for us to have a pan after eventually have a pan African approach to uh, our, our work. And I often say that um, uh, because I'm African American. Um, you know, uh, I, of course I, 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 you know, like in a family dynamic, you have your, your immediate family and then you have your extended parts of your family. All of you guys are family, but initially you need to take care of your, your family closest to you. And so that's the way in which I kind of approach this, this.
this topic. Yeah, I love that. And I love the word you use, decolonizing um, of the mindset, because which is going to lead me into the next question is, you know, what do you say to the people whom I'm sure you've already heard it already uh, that's going to say, hey, man, Sydney, you need to chill with all this black stuff, this pan-African stuff. We are all one. You know, we all try to get to the same kingdom and we don't need this black stuff. You know, we need to we need to be focusing on Jesus and the return. We can do both. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm not negating. I'm not negating that. But our people have particular needs. And what I've found um, through my K through uh, 20 Adventist experience. I went to uh, white schools. Uh, me and a couple other brothers recently uh, wrote an article, uh, the three Hebrew boys, uh, uh, Dr. Ty Douglas, myself, and Andre Denham. We talk about our experiences in Adventist education. And one of the, one of the things that we found was that uh, in all of our experiences, we've had negative experiences with uh, our white brothers and sisters. Right. And in some way, we've um, we found that. White people don't care about us. I know it's a heavy statement, mm-hmm. but essentially, um, if there's no interest conversion and what I mean by that, uh, by that, because I know we have listeners here, is that essentially if they don't see how they benefit from what they're doing, they don't do it. So I often I often question why we have such a. A, th- a thirst and thrust for missions for black people outside of the United States, right? But we can pass, we can pass the person, um, we can talk, we can talk with whether it's ADRA or any of our other, our other uh, functions within our church, why we can just pass black Americans here in the States and do all this missionary work, right? But not do things to support blacks here in America, right? And 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 what I think is is that we're a threat. I think that if we get so if we if we uh, gain and 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 resources and power and things like that, it's a threat to the white power structure. And I have to say that our church essentially has a white power structure. If the majority, if they said like forty plus percent of the church is African is African American. And another large sector is both uh, Hispanic and uh, Hispanic Latinx or Asian. Um, then uh, why uh, why do we have a, a white GC president? Why do we have uh, our top leaders as um, our, our white men in particular? So I think that that kind of thing needs to be problem problematized and pushed on. Yeah, it, it's almost as if the the Adventist Church mimics America in some senses, where you have America will, let's say MLK weekend will honor Martin Luther King Jr., but at the same time they will pass policies that are against that will that will be against blacks and minorities in this country. And so you have the Adventist Church, they will they will, and I wouldn't even say they would even honor us. And I remember at the last GC, they did this uh, uh, keynote presentation, talked about missions to the world. 
and they talked about America and they totally skipped over the mission work that they did in the South. Like they just went from, you know, what happened in America, skipped over that and then went over to somewhere else. And I had this sense of feeling where it was like, this church loves our bodies. It loves our money, but it does not love our story enough to include it in the whole Adventist um, trajectory, the whole Adventist plot. And that is a problem to me because we're big contributors. Like going back to the beginning of this podcast, and I see you have something you want to say. Going back to the beginning of this podcast, when you talked about the first Black Adventist theologian, this is my first time hearing about that. Never knew about that. That's just been erased from, you know, <laughs> from from my mind or not, not even a race. It's never even, it hasn't even entered my mind for it to be erased, you know? And so this, this whole thing is that we're, and we're, same thing with blacks in America, we are tolerated. We are okay until we start making waves and start demanding and asking for certain things. Um, and I don't know if you had any thoughts on that, if you agree or disagree, or what is your opinion in that, in that fact? My mind, of course, is running. Uh, so let, this is, I, I'll share why you don't know about someone like Owen Troy. So I, i uh, for the last four years, I said, I, you know, I've been studying him. And just recently, within the last uh, three months, I started going, uh, going into uh, some of his archival information. And he has, he has a, a bulletin, right? And this is, is in the uh, 1930s. And here's the, here's the name of, of, of his sermon for his revival. Will the dark race rule the world again? There's, a, there's another, another um, article where it says, uh, that would kind of cover that sermon. It's the title of it is, Will Black Races Rule the World Again? So you have someone that was, kind, we're talking about, so you imagine the 30s, he's talking like this. Wow. So are say so are they going to is the Adventist church going to celebrate him? Are Absolutely. you going to know about someone that's conscious in that way? Not to say that we we've had a lot of other guys that are are conscious, don't get me wrong, that have done work within the church, but I think it's it's just like America as you said, there has been a, a strategic uh, way in which those individual individuals have been hidden from us and devalued. And it's up to us to kind of do the the real work to uncover those hidden those hidden figures. Absolutely, man. Because there is, and the elephant in the room is this: there is a fear within our church to have a true dialogue about race, to have a true dialogue about white supremacy and whiteness, and even white fragility. Oh yeah. That when these things come up, you know, it it, it becomes sensitive, and we avoid it. I forgot that there's a book called race talk and you know, why it talks about why these conversations are difficult. And in race talk, it talks about how they, 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 you know, the fear of talking about race is because they're afraid of becoming guilty or then they make it personal as it's an attack on them. And it's not an, essentially an attack on them. It is a conversation about, we have a problem with race and that, you know, we have a problem when it comes to addressing certain ills um, and atrocities within our church, particularly against black people throughout the years that we try to gloss over. It's the same thing in America um, about the, we haven't had a true conversation about race. 
similar to what South Africa had, a Truth and Reconciliation Conference. And I think you're hitting on it that in order for us to move forward, in order for us to to get to where we need to be as blacks, as whites, as whomever it is, we need to start having these conversations. Like you brought up, this church is becoming predominantly black. How is it that for years we still have a white man representing us and speaking on and speaking on behalf of us, but yet still speaking to us, not on behalf of us, speaking to us in regards to saying things like uh, no clapping, you know, uh, during worship or dressing up in colonial garments that's reminiscent of the days of slavery and just very insensitive. And yet still we keep supporting this financially and even with the blatant discrimination against our women with not offering to them ordination. Um, these are some serious problems and issues that we need to address. And, and my, my, my concern, though, is I don't, wanna, uh, I don't want a black man and white face, though, either. So what I don't want is if we don't decolonize, let's go back to that term, right? If we don't decolonize uh, and make sure we're holding people accountable, we can, in the in the next within the next two cycles of the general conference, right? We can have a we can have an African, right? Yeah. As president, right? Mm-hmm. Because they have the numbers, but the but the question is going to be: Is their thinking and their theology is it informed by by understanding how this would imp, you know their policies would impact our people, right? And so mm-hmm. we see that. We see that in the public sphere with 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 Ben Carson, right? So yeah. if you don't want to have that kind of situation. Uh, I would I would rather us be very strategic about uh, about who's in there uh, rather than just having a black face. Yeah, and it goes back to your original thought and your thesis that we need to start um, developing leadership and developing scholars to say, look, you are the next one. And we need to make sure that you are who you say you are. Because as you said, you know, uh, some whites love the black person that is safe, who isn't going to cause ripples, who's just going to get along, you know, just to get by and say, hey, we need to be one and not actually address the issues. You know, on the flip side, um, I feel that I feel that way about, uh, you know, some of the presidential candidates in the democratic race, like I'm not going to vote for the white guy just because he has a black friend. Right. You know, like that, that does not make you inherently, um, you know, true to what I need in that office just because you've got a black friend, you know? So we need to be very careful and very sure about whom we're grooming and whom, you know, is in these positions of leadership that will speak on, uh, on, for us, on behalf of us. If I can, if I could just say this, I want to affirm. Um, I want to affirm both uh, theologians who have gone up the typical uh, or the traditional route to become a, a theologian, but there is an emerging group of scholars who who may not be theologically trained like uh, Claudia Allen and some others that are doing some very critical work uh, in the area of theology. Um, uh, Timothy Golden is another one, right? 
uh, that are doing very critical work, but they not, may not have been necessarily uh, traditionally trained in a uh, theological department, but are making contributions. And I would like to just affirm them because one of the challenges I had, it took me, it took me four years to write this article. Mm-hmm. I, uh, it's not that this wasn't in me, but the issue was, was that I was concerned. I was concerned that I wasn't, I'm not a theologian. And so who am I to, to speak to this? So that's why I framed it within the context of my own expertise, mm-hmm. uh, doctoral education. But mm-hmm. I believe that it, uh, that we need to be supportive of those who may not uh, have a traditional uh, theological background, but uh, may be able to contribute substantially to theological thought in our church. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm glad you pointed that out. Yeah, I celebrate them, too. I'm big fans of Claudia, big fans of uh, Timothy Golden, big fan of you and your contributions. And thank you for pushing the envelope. Um, Sydney, uh is there any any last words you want to communicate to the listeners? Yeah. Yeah, so there's a couple of things. I, I assume anyone that has listened to this uh, podcast this long is a, uh, a social justice-minded person and a person on the front line. I think one of the challenges that we have is that, um, uh, I, I don't know if we talk about this openly or not, well, a lot of us are doing the work in our own spaces, but how are we affirming each other um, in the work that we're doing in our different in our dis- different spheres? And I find that sometimes we've done. Uh, there are people that I'm excited that I'm seeing they're doing work, I'm doing work, other, and we don't. Then when we get to get, when we get together, it's almost like we don't know how to interact with one another and how to support one another. And I think we need to we need to create more forums. I think that uh, Michael Polite uh, is doing is trying to do some things like that. But we need to find and, and create uh, space where where we can be supportive of one another, be uh, 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 challenge one another. Uh, I know that many of us are in white space are in white spaces, and uh, what ends up happening is we become even uh, suspicious of each other, right? And mm-hmm. so I think it's Im- important that uh, we as as uh, socially justice minded Seventh Day Adventists that we're that we're working together and finding ways in which to build community and and friendships uh, because it's working be lonely right and it can be hard uh, and I, I really appreciate your work because uh, because I, I know you speak forthrightly uh, with regard to some of the issues that we find in our church I know that that can be a lonely, a lonely walk. Uh, I could only imagine. So uh, I thank you and uh, want to just uh, show appreciation for you creating such a forum as this uh, for me to uh, uh, for me to share. And the last last thing is is that so as you can see, uh, uh, I speak with a black dialect. I don't code switch. Mm-hmm. And so right. that's that's. Um, uh, that's just my that's a, my approach. I was going to say that a little earlier in the podcast, but I don't necessarily uh, code switch like 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 some others may choose may choose to do. But I I uh, I've learned that I'm able to not have to code switch because some people have code switched before me. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. So uh, I also always want to uh, say thank you to to people you know people like Pommy Vanderhorst and others who have done work. 
uh, well ahead of us uh, that we stand on their shoulders. Amen. That's that's dope, man. That's dope. Love and appreciate you, bro. How can people get in contact with you if they want to talk a little bit more about your work, um, a little bit more about the stuff that you're doing and have done? Uh, is there any way that they can they can uh, get with yeah. you? Yes. So uh, Sydney Freeman uh, Jr. Uh, uh, if you Google that name, uh, it, uh, a whole bunch of stuff will come up as far as my work. You, you have my my uh, university page where you'll be able to look at my work there. Uh, and there's some other articles from Adventist Today and Spectrum that you can be able to find. But if you want to uh, reach out to me, email me. Uh, my email is Sydney, S-Y-D-N-E-Y dot Freeman, F-R-E-E-M-A-N dot junior which is jr at gmail.com and so reach out to me in 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 that way Uh, i'm also i'm big on facebook so uh you can just look up sydney uh sydney freeman i don't have the junior on the back of that one so sydney freeman and you you'll be able to it's the black guy with the dread (laughs) (laughs) all right all right man dr freeman thanks for taking the time to be with me on raise your voice Thank you for raising it. Thank you for being a light in this dark world and a catalyst for change. And I'm praying for you and all your endeavors and your success. And please, uh, please continue to, you know, speak truth to power. Thank you. All right.